Hi, everybody, and welcome to a long overdue episode of Compliant with Alliant podcast, uh, bringing you insights to employee benefits compliance. I'm your host, Christine Blanco, and Diana Craig is with me as always. Hello, everyone. So today we're going to play a little game of categories. I'm really kind of pushing this um this metaphor, but we've selected the letter G for today, haven't we? Um, we're going to talk about um, a number of topics all happen to be starting with the letter G. Gender reassignment, surgery, we're going to talk about gag clauses, and we're going to talk about gene therapy, and then I'm going to throw a non-G related thing at the end to talk a little bit about some litigation that's going on largely in the PBM space. So. Um, I think we're going to start with gender reassignment uh, surgery. We see uh, a lot of questions about this over the past few years, and we kind of want to level set on where we are with it and best practice recommendations. Yeah, I think we just we had a couple of really important um, unrelated topics and are trying to group <laughs> them together. It's categories. It's G. You know, we pulled the G out, and now we're going with it. Which I had forgotten what categories was. Mm-hmm. So this is educational for we everyone. Debated, was it boggle? Was it no? It's categories. <laughs> We looked it up. It's not apples to apples. We're playing <laughs> categories. No, it's categories. All right. So I, I'm going to kick it off talking about gender affirming surgeries. And and I wanted to do this because this is an evolving space, but we're now at a, at a place where, you know, we're, we're pretty well settled in the landscape, but it still comes up a lot. So I just wanted to make sure in a kind of conversational way, we talk to you about sort of what we think uh, you should be looking at and what we think you should be doing. And the question that hits our desk is, can we exclude or limit coverage for gender affirming surgeries? And you know, my short answer on that is usually uh, the slightly non-committal, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's complicated like most of the things we do. And the issue is that the diagnosis and treatment for gender dysphoria is going to raise issues under the Mental Health Parity Addiction Equity Act. And that's going to be sort of the driving law behind this. But it also implicates things like Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. And for anyone um, really in the weeds, which is typically our providers, Section 1557, right. which yeah. that's going, going way back. But right. we're going to focus on the first two because uh, 1557 is pretty narrowly applicable. Yeah, right. Um, So the big level set is just um, how the Mental Health Parity Act changed in um, its last iteration of Mm -hmm. rules and regs. And I'm not talking about the new proposed ones. I'm talking, you know, we're reaching back, you know, 2014-ish. And basically the rule there was if you provide mental health or substance use benefits in any one of six coverage categories and i hate listing those out (laughs) we just did a webinar listen to that one there's six coverage categories it's inpatient network you know what you guys get it prescription (laughs) drugs all of those things you must provide mental health substance use disorder benefits in every one of the six coverage categories where you provide medical surgical benefits so when we look at that, I mean, what it actually means is that if you, um, and I want to say you can have a complete exclusion in theory. So in theory, you could have a total exclusion across. For mental health. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. or for a specific mental health in, condition. Very theoretically, though. <laughs> it is very theoretical. And and the problem is is that um, sort of the, the treatment for gender dysphoria is going to come up in ways that's hard to control. So we're looking at counseling. Does your plan provide, um, you know, mental health counseling? Um, how are you going to control that none of that counseling is addressing gender dysphoria? If your plan is covering hormones. Yeah, prescription. 
Vitamins, right, exactly. You know, if you're in it for pharmacy, you're in it for all the other six categories. Um, So it's really hard to determine the reason behind um, So some of those scripts. So you kind of can get get thrown in, all in, Mm -hmm. when you're not even even sure about it. Right, not even really paying attention to that. No, I mean, you might think you have a complete exclusion, and the reality is you don't. And the issue here we see is there's a lot of sort of scrutiny by agencies, Mm -hmm. a lot of complaints come out of this. So this is one where you might, um, you know, sort of draw some fire if you are thinking you've got that complete exclusion. So just be aware of that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There are are some issues in benefit plan compliance that can go on in perpetuity and no one's ever going to pay attention to them, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, not that we're going to make mention of, you know, how sad our life's work is. But anyway, (laughs) um, but this is one of them that, you know, when we have a um, something that's very participant, you know, impactful, that it just, it, it can, it, the risk is higher with it. Yeah, it, it's definitely high risk. And the, the next question we get on the can you exclude is, well, what about a limit? Mm-hmm. We just want to put a limit on it. And uh, that gets into some really complicated mm-hmm. mental health parity math. There is something, uh, a rule called the one-thirds, two-thirds rule that I am not going to go Please into. Go. <laughs> <laughs> but it basically is the math you do to see if you could, in theory, apply a lifetime or annual limit. But ever since the ACA was enacted, we know that the ACA precluded lifetime and annual limits on essential health benefits. So you you just never meet that threshold of being able to apply that limit. And 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 the thought too is like on limits if what we're talking about is cost here and you know not some other reason, you know, it it's even helpful to take a look at cost, right? Which is over versus overall spend, right? I mean the procedure costs what it costs, right? And a limit isn't necessarily I think probably going to be a juice worth the squeeze, so to speak, right? Yeah, and our our really, really brilliant data people at one point had shout out <laughs> had data on like the actual, you know, cost and impact to plans. And of course that can depend on your plan size. And we're gonna get into some more um, budgety mathy things mm-hmm. later, but which the same, we should not be allowed to do for that. I, I know somebody's gonna <laughs> We're relying we're relying on our data people. We we're gonna promise. have a, an intervention here yeah. when we start talking <laughs> about math. But uh, but so yeah it's it turns out it's not actually that costly to the plan and you're picking up a good bit of risk. And just to close things out, I did want to bring back around that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act because we were back in June of 2020 when the Supreme Court basically said Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Then we we go even further and the EEOC has said that um, group health plan gender dysphoria treatment exclusions can be challenged under Title VII, and they've been reaching settlement agreements with employers. So this can come up on a lot of different fronts. Yeah, that's a really important point, too. It's not just here in the group health plan compliance space. And again, we don't have a ton of that necessarily in group health plan compliance, but this is one of those spaces. Um, Okay, are we ready to move on to the second G? Oh, let's let's go. We're going to go to gag clauses. So Gag clauses. Uh, Back in, let's see, I guess, December of 2020, the year we all remember so well. And I always say I remember this because I was, you know, sitting on a couch, you know, parsing through the Consolidated Appropriations Act and thinking, um, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here. And looking at one of those provisions, it was, and it was, anyway, I I need to, (laughs) I need to, um, 
bring myself back to present days. Sometimes when we go back to the COVID, the COVID compliance years, it's a little bit tough. But 2023, um, GAD clause uh, prohibitions that showed up in the Consolidated Appropriations Act back in, you know, effective. So it was effective December 27, 2020. Group health plans are not permitted to, you know, have agreements with a provider, network of providers. So we're looking really at TPAs, um, largely is where our focus, or any sort of point solution or other group health plan service provider that gives you an access um, to a network or a network of providers. Um, you cannot have gag clauses in those agreements. And a gag clause is, okay, how am I gonna say? A gag clause is essentially, pro- prohibits data share of, you know, any number of data elements. So episodic treatment, you know, PHI, um, limitations on sharing that particular data, claims related data with your business associates or the participants themselves, right? And so for a lot of years, TPAs and other service providers did have restrictions on how you could share that data largely designed to protect their own commercial information, right? What agreements did they have with their provider, their provider networks, right? So, but they were a little bit in that sense overreaching in that they also would prohibit plans from accessing and or sharing that type of data. And in an effort for transparency, the Consolidated Appropriations Act placed this prohibition on gag clauses in agreements um, that group health plans have with those providers. So that's the level set. But it's a challenge because we're looking at kind of Mm -hmm. downstream agreements, things that um, plan sponsors weren't really looking past the TPA to their contracting with provider networks. That's right. Exactly. That's right. So... Um, so it's one of those, again, it's it's the burden is on the group health plan to manage something that really isn't in their purview to manage necessarily, right? Whether, you know, what kind of agreements the TPA had, you know, with its own networks and what, what it was drafting in terms of its own uh, third-party administration agreements. But we are now to the point where, you know, the market is becoming educated on this and the new transparency requirements. And, and your obligation as a group health plan is to attest to the agencies that you do not have, your plan does not, con- plan agreements do not contain any gag clauses as appropriate, right? So how do you do that? We do that, um, and it's a fairly simple attestation, actually. Um, it's through the HIOS system, and it's it's a fairly gr- you know simple group of questions and you know some basic plan data. It's not like the pharmacy reporting, and you know we have a guide on how to do it. But um, as you know, how do you know what you should be attesting to, and whether you should say yes or no? Really, what what we've done here at Alliant, and on behalf of our clients, and hopefully you've done this as well, is just get an attestation from your TPA if they're not going to do the attestation on your behalf. Well, right? and, and that was what one thing that kind of frustrated me was when we got the, the regs on this, on the attestation process, it was really clear that your TPA, your PBM, yeah. even your point solution people could go in and make sort of one blanket attestation based on their entire book, book of, of business. business. Yeah. And so I kind of thought, all right, this isn't going to be a group health plan problem because, you know, whoever your TPA is, PBM, they can go in 
en masse and say, yes, we've removed them. Um, but then we're just not seeing that done consistently. No. So employers are having to go in yep. and, and even though it's simple, it's something they have to do. Yeah. And what we're seeing and, and we've surveyed the market is that if you're fully insured, the carriers are largely doing it on behalf of their fully insured plans. But TPAs, who are often also large carriers, are not doing it on behalf of their self-funded plans. So you are required. They are, however, providing a statement to their clients that they are compliant with this provision, in which case you as a plan sponsor can rely on that attestation from your your partners to then complete the attestation with um, its CMS. And so, you know, the takeaways for this are you will likely, if you have any self-funded component to your plan, carve out PBM, a point solution, you know, Teladoc, whatever the case may be, um, you will have to do largely, unless you're only exclusively fully insured, right? You will have to do an attestation. Sidebar, accepted benefits are not covered here. So your dental and vision, generally you don't have to worry about making an attestation there, EAPs. Anything that falls in FSA falls into that accepted benefits. You're not gonna have to make an attestation for that. So you can rely on what the TPA is telling you and go in and make your attestation. And again, it's pretty simple. Um, and it takes you, you know, the, there's a really good user manual online as well. Another quick note about that is, um, you know, we have some very enthusiastic clients that start taking a look at their TPA agreement. And certainly you can do that. You can have your lawyers do that. But know that a lot of the TPAs, rather than actually amending their agreements and sending out new agreements en masse, are relying on catch-all provisions that say we otherwise comply with all applicable state and federal laws to um to attest to the fact that they're, you know, that they're compliant with this provision. And again, our recommendation has generally been, if your TBA has told you they're compliant, then you take that and you run with it and you make your attestation. Well, and this is not new. These should have been removed, I mean. In, in 2021. 2020, yeah. yeah. And that's, on that note, um, because this mandate went into effect in, um, on, you know, effective on or after December 27, 2020, you will be attesting this initial round to 2021, 2022, and 2023, and then moving forward, obviously, on an annual basis. So I think that's it on gag clauses. Yeah, I just, I can't <laughs> that was believe a lot. they're sorry. making us do something on, it was a December 27th. That feels like a anti-Christmas present. I know. that. I guess that's what I was getting at when I was going down my sad rabbit hole was that I remember how sad I was during the holidays <laughs> reading the consolidated appropriations. I it was raining outside and it felt sad. So and anyway, I'm glad we're not there. Um, but still talking about gag clauses. So now we're going to talk about gene therapy. There's been a ton of chatter around this for obvious reasons. It's a huge development in the market. It's a huge issue for group health plans. You know, it dovetails, you know, a lot of hot topics, pharmacy, um, innovation, cost. And so we wanted to kind of hit this from a compliance perspective, also sort of using our our data geniuses to help us talk through this. Yeah. And and gene therapies, um, it's really been a fascinating evolution. I remember the first few I heard about were way back in 2017, and I think that was the um, Zolgensma, which is the treatment for SMA. 
and um, nice. it was very, very expensive. Um, and so that was when the first questions started coming about up about, can we have an exclusion for this? Are we required to cover this? Because the pricing on it, it you know, it's uh, north of two million. Right. Um, that, but then you have to weigh that against the prevalence of claims, uh, the size of your population. I mean, there's a lot of sort of data that kind of informs that math. But so uh, what we've learned is the, the answer is basically the same answer as we've evolved into 2022, 2023, where we have just massive numbers of gene therapies entering the market. And some of them are, again, at that um, multi-million price mm -hmm. point. Some of them are a, a little less. And when we kind of pull back on this, we just sort of start with there isn't an affirmative mandate to cover these gene therapies. So when we when we look at what the framework would be, we looked at GINA, Title I, Title II. There's not a coverage mandate or um, anything requiring a plan to cover these. When we then look further at it, it's how would this maybe work under something like the ADA, mm -hmm. Americans with Disabilities Act? And that doesn't have a coverage mandate, but it does have certain benefit plan rules. And we have a really good white paper yeah. on ADA and how that sort of affects your benefit plan. But um, and that's not something we commonly talk about, so it's good to kind of hit it here. Yeah, it, it doesn't come up a lot mm -hmm. because we don't see a lot of it. Would be a disability-based distinction mm -hmm. in your plan design, which just doesn't happen that often. It, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and the rule there is you can have such a distinction as long as it's not considered subterfuge for discrimination, which is, I didn't make that up. That is, that <laughs> is the their, their term. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at that analysis, it would be we're excluding this because adding the coverage would come at an increased cost in terms of premiums, benefits, eligibility for coverage. And so do we want to talk about those numbers a little bit and kind of what we found out when we talked to our data folks and how it would parlay into this analysis, right? Like that given the cost of these drugs, you know, if you are, it, it scale matters, right? How big of an employer are you? What's your budget for your benefit plan against the likelihood of these things happening? All of that is, is relevant at, at those really big, big scale kind of employers. We're talking 50,000 employees, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, that that's the, the ADA often looks at uh, cost in terms of reasonableness. And so if you are one of those mega, mega employers and, you know, you have, a budget of uh, $500 million a year for your benefit plan, and you're looking at covering some of these treatments, you'd want to do the analysis before you excluded them and see sort of what is that, um, what is the the impact on annual group health plan cost if we cover this versus if we excluded it. Mm -hmm. um, but the smaller you get, it, it kind of becomes this um, really difficult conundrum because if, if one or two of these hits, it can really um, sort of eclipse your budget quickly. All right. That's. I mean, so the analysis really does change as you go down market, which is most of the groups with which we work, right? That probability, well, that's nice, except for that if it happens, you've blown up the entire thing, right? So then that leads to, well, how are we How are we as a market dealing with this, right? How are we, you know, and, and of course the market is has been has come to the table on creating different kind of stop loss programs and you know how do you deal with that and that yes generally stop loss will cover this unless it's carved out or lasered and yes they can do all of those things and so i know we're seeing lots of different products um you know from the major carriers in addition to i think probably um non-carrier you know connected 
um, stop loss products for gene therapy drugs. And so um, from a compliance perspective, there's nothing, there are no issues really with that. Really? No, I mean, it's, you, you can have an exclusion. Mm -hmm. I would ask that you look at sort of data on cost. Um, And then if you have stop loss, I would just be very, very careful about sort of, you know, that they know what you're covering, what you're excluding, that you know what they're covering and they're excluding. That's right. And and, then that's really, really important because sometimes, you know, I, I happen to look at those agreements, and, and so you, it, it is really important for you to understand what the agreement says in that regard. Our stop-loss folks are really engaged on this and do a really good job with that. So um, it's important that your partners are also very well-versed in, you know, what's the risk? What are you going to cover? What's the cost, again, relative to your overall spend? So, again, now we're getting into um, numbers and math. I know. That, that's not our <laughs> thing. So we're going to stop. But we have really good people who can do that yes, math. that's for sure. Thank goodness for that. So, um, so I think the takeaway is, you know, be mindful. There is an ADA issue here, and but that depends really on size and spend and all of that. But that generally, you know, you can probably move in this space and manage your, your plan costs, you know, effectively with what's out there in the market. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think that ends the G's. This felt like a lot of complicated topics. I know. So now I'm going to go to litigation, which is everyone's <laughs> oh, no. fun topic. So I'm just going to hit litigation really quickly because it's not necessarily our wheelhouse. But um, I just kind of wanted to circle back on there's a lot of litigation in the PBM space. So I'm trying to wedge in a G, but I can't. So um, there's, you know, the ongoing issue of state states enacting PBM-related laws that are restricting PBMs and what they can do and, you know, how they can contract with pharmacies and, and whatnot. And so we and we have had differing outcomes. There's one from the Supreme Court which says uh, a particular law was not preempted by ERISA. The issue is whether your states can actually do that and regulate plans that are, you know, self-funded ERISA plans. Um, and so because those of you who are multi-state employers, if you're dealing with 50 different PBM laws, your administration is just your head's going to explode, right? I mean, and so what we want to avoid, right, is that patchwork quilt of compliance. And so it's really a moving target at this point. We have one Supreme Court decision that um, does, not pre- does not preempt the law. ERISA does not preempt the law. We have a Tenth Circuit decision that will likely go up to the Supreme Court that says, yeah, well, the way this law was written, it actually does touch the plan in a way that is problematic under ERISA and is therefore preempted. We will likely have more. What I've come to find out is every law is written differently and they're largely snowflakes as to whether they're, you know, um, whether they're going to be preempted. We'll see. I don't, I, I you know, you would hope that they're taking sort of a, a page out of the Supreme Court's book and the, and the, um, the court's decisions, but we'll see. So again, that's just kind of an evolving issue and we're really relying on our PBM partners to talk us through administration on that um, and and the risk with that. Another issue that a decision that just came out was um, on the HHS copay accumulator rules. So real quickly, there are so the manufacturers often manufacturers will um, help will provide um, financial assistance to participants on certain drugs, and the question became you know this started coming up four or five years ago six years ago maybe um, the question became how does that work with you know going towards the out of pocket maximum and you know cost sharing generally, and there was an initial rule that said um, that you could only um, you could you could not count that 
towards um, towards the out-of-pocket costs only where there was a generic equivalent. Am I saying that backwards? Well, and the the bigger issue there is um, if you have a HSA compatible HDHP, you are only supposed to apply what the member pays out of pocket pocket towards that deductible. Two issues going on there. Well, that's the one I care about. I know you do. I know, (laughs) and that and that's huge, right? But so these coupons um, shouldn't count towards that deductible for an HSA uh, compatible HDHP. That's right. That's right. So it blows up if you count them towards the OOP. It blows up your HSA plan. Um, and so there was a rule that that said basically under certain circumstances you had to count them, and then they came back and said, well, the, it's up to the plan. The plan can use its discretion as to whether to count them. And then um, the there was a district court case that said, no, 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 that doesn't work. And so you have to count them towards. That's what the decision said. And so right now what we're doing is we're not doing anything about that because first of all. It's a district court decision. It's got very limited application. No, really, application at yeah, this point. Yeah, it, it's just not binding, and but it's something we certainly have to watch very closely now. We do, and again, the being the the disparity in that with you know HGHPs and HSA compatibility. There's all it's all part of it. And so when the question is, I've heard about this case that says I now have to do this as a plan. I was doing this. Now I have to count this, right? Because obviously the increase, the cost increases to the plan in that situation. Um, our recommendation is you don't really have to do anything. You just have to watch it. Yeah. I mean, for now, we want to watch it. I would say talk to your TPA, um, you know, PBM partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the original issue with the coupons was if the manufacturer coupon you know, takes you to the top of your out-of-pocket maximum, there's just your cost to the plan on That's that. That's right. I mean, yeah, exactly. When we first started talking about that. And um, so obviously plans having the discretion is, is helpful when you're looking and planning for costs. Um, and so I think that takes us to the end. And it's a long podcast. We're sorry. It's been a while. We won't wait so long. Um, thanks for joining us. <laughs>